Two words, spiritual warfare. Some of you have already faced that just getting to church this morning. There's a battle that is taking place all around us. If you are not familiar with that concept, spiritual warfare describes this ongoing struggle between the advancement of God's kingdom and the opposing influences of evil. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3, it says, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh. The Bible tells us that there is a battle that is happening around us. It is a spiritual battle. And while we cannot always see the influencers, that is, those who are rulers and authorities and powers, we can absolutely see their influence. That is, you can look in the world around you and you can see the destruction and the chaos. You can see the brokenness and the pain that is caused by evil and caused by sin. There's a battle that is happening around us. A part of the enemy's strategy is to make believers think there is no battle because oblivious people make easy targets. Part of the enemy's strategy is to make believers think that if there is a battle, it's somewhere else. As long as my dog is not levitating, as long as inanimate objects are not moving around within my house, then that's a battle somewhere else. The issue there is unconcerned people make easy targets. Part of the enemy's strategy is to make believers think that our problems have no spiritual connection. We're very quick to say things like, I just feel overwhelmed. You know, my mind is just distracted right now. It's, it's issues that I've been battling. It's worry, it's anxiety, it's fear. Uh, my, my emotions are all over the place, but it's not spiritual warfare. Here's the thing. Deceived people make easy targets. Ed Silvaso, an Argentinian evangelist, said, and I quote, The church in the West today presents too easy a target for Satan. We do not believe we are at war. We do not know where the battleground is located. And in spite of our weapons, they are neither loaded nor aimed at the right target. We are unaware of how vulnerable we are. We are better fitted for a parade than a war. End of quote. When it comes to spiritual warfare, truth, instruction, and obedience are crucial. I say that because what you believe determines how you act, and how you act determines if you win. Let me say that again. What you believe determines how you act, and how you act determines if you win. Now, somebody might say, but Paul, Jesus has already won the war. And I would say, yes, amen, and hallelujah. But his victory only becomes our victory when he lives it through us. 
When we act as though there is no battle, when we ignore our weapons, when we live unaware of God's path of victory, we do not experience the victory that is ours in Christ. What you believe determines how you act, and how you act determines if you win. So today, I want to do everything I can to shed light on a major part of that spiritual battle. It is a battle that is happening in your mind, and it is a battle that is happening for your mind. There is a spiritual battle that is taking place. You're already involved in it today, if you know it or not. There's a battle that is happening. So today is message number four in our Rewire series, and we are rethinking how we think. And today we're talking about the importance of taking every thought captive, and that one particular text, it's actually found in the context of spiritual warfare. So we need to kind of lay the context before we can get into the text. Does that make sense? We've got to know what's happening before we can dig out the truths that are there. This particular passage, this issue of taking every thought captive is so big, I'm going to break it down between this week and next week. We're going to go through the first three steps of this on this morning. And we're going to leave off at a place so that you understand what is actually being attacked. What is the battle that you're facing each day? And then we're going to pick up in that same part next week and show how that directly leads into renewing the mind. We have a lot to cover. Have you all noticed I usually have about three messages that we pile into about 37 minutes on a Sunday morning? So you just have to listen faster when I preach. So if you would, go with me in your Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter number 10, verses 3 through 5. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. I'm speaking this morning on the subject of a biblical understanding of captive thoughts. We begin reading in verse number 3 and following. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are needing right now your spirit to not only guide into truth, but God, we are needing your spirit to so protect and harness and direct our minds so that we do not become so distracted with life that we miss what's happening in this moment. God, we need you in order to illumine our minds to allow your truth to sink in deep and then by your spirit may it be lived out in obedience in our lives. We are praying this morning for transformation. We are praying this morning that minds are gonna be set free. We are praying from the very beginning that the gospel would so penetrate hearts today that those who have been bound by the enemy for years, this morning they experience freedom. God, it's only going to happen because of you. So, Lord, we are dependent from the very beginning. In Jesus' name, amen. The book of 1 Corinthians is a book that the Apostle Paul had to write in order to address sin within the church at Corinth. That was a difficult type of a letter for him to write. It was difficult because he knew a lot of those people. He was the one that planted the church in Corinth. But whenever the 
the letter was received, most of the people handled it well. They repented of their ways. They got back on the right path, and things were going extremely well. But here's what happened when that letter hit the church at Corinth. All of those rebukes also pointed a finger at the leaders who allowed it to happen. And by that, I mean that every one of those rebukes, it pointed towards improper teaching or poor judgment and oversight or unwillingness to address sin and just allow that sin to flourish. So the leaders in Corinth, they were feeling the heat. They, they did not like where this was going, so they brought up accusations of their own against the Apostle Paul. They claimed that Paul was fickle and he was proud. He was unimpressive in his appearance as well as in his speech. He was dishonest. He was disqualified as an apostle of Christ. They said he is bold in his letters, but he would not have that boldness face to face. So in 2 Corinthians, the apostle Paul painstakingly walks through a defense of his calling and his character as well as the fact that he was commissioned by God in order to address that particular church. Even though he takes time to correct the leaders in the church at Corinth, he doesn't miss an oppor opportunity to teach. He actually draws their attention to the fact that there is a spiritual battle that was happening all around them. And that is the forces of darkness were influencing godly people to act in ungodly ways. Pause there for just a moment. Have you ever been in a situation where someone you know is a believer? They've been walking with Jesus for a long time. And all of a sudden they find themselves in a position where they do something. You're thinking, that is not biblical. That's ungodly. That does not represent Christ. That doesn't represent Scripture. That's not who you are. In that moment, here's what you just saw. There's a spiritual battle that is taking place. The influences of evil are encouraging godly people to act in ungodly ways. So in just a few of these verses, the Apostle Paul, he speaks of war, weapons, warfare, destruction, fortresses, and destroying. He wants to get their attention on this point. You're in a battle. There's a battle that is happening for your mind. And unless you understand what's taking place around you, you're going to continue to lose in the daily battles that you're facing. The battle they faced is the same one that we face to this very day. The influence of evil thoughts. The proliferation of false teaching and the growing impact of godless theology. Anything that stands in the way of the knowledge of God is a part of this battle. Whoever controls the mind wins the battle. That's why it's so important when we say what you believe determines how you act, and how you act determines if you win. So what exactly are the basics of spiritual warfare, and why is it important that believers take every thought captive? We're going to spend the lion's share of this morning's message on this first point. Here it is. Our battle is spiritual. Our battle is spiritual. There, there's nothing about that statement that's going to surprise believers, but I want to drive it home as deep as I possibly can this morning. Verse number three, it says, For though we walk in the flesh... We do not war according to the flesh. 
Although we walk in the flesh, that is within this physical body, we do not war according to the flesh that is within this physical realm. Our battle is a spiritual battle, and that has to be clear. If it's not clear, then here's the issue. We take the right fight to the wrong source every single time. We attack the person, not the influence. We go after the effect, and we miss the cause. I want you to notice the plural pronouns that are mentioned in this particular section of verses. It says, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh. Verse 5, we are destroying every speculation. We are taking every thought captive. There's no I. There's no me. There's a we. Why is it important? Because an isolated Christian will be defeated every time. Period. Exclamation point. If you think biblical community is optional, you will live in defeat. You need the believers on your right. You need the believers on your left. You need those who have just started the race. You need those who have been running the race for a really long time. You need people who have the gifts just like you, and you need people who have different gifts that you do not have. You need the body of Christ. You need it together. It's, it's we fight in this together. What we just experienced a few moments ago in worship, that was a part of our fighting together. That, that's a part of letting people recognize that there's truths that we adhere to. There's, there's a God that we are praising and worshiping. We are in this together. It's a journey that we walk as brothers and sisters in Christ. We need each other. There's a battle that's happening around us. In over 23 years of ministry, myself and Bria have experienced spiritual warfare on a mental level that is within our thoughts, within problems, within discouragement, as well as on a manifestation level, that is with outward demonic activity as well as confrontation. I do not share a lot of these stories. I'm not going to share a lot of them with you this morning. And my reason is I do not want to give the enemy airtime on a Sunday morning. But I do think it's important that we understand the basics of the attack so that when it's happening in your life, you don't just say, that's just living. No, that's a battle. So when I say that we've battled things on a mental level as well as a manifestation level, let me share a few of those just going back to the events that occurred 18 years ago when we started planting a church in Las Vegas. Showed up in a brand new city, away from family and friends, and by the way, when you are planting a church in Satan's playground, there's going to be some challenges that come along with it. A lot of times, people that do not live in Las Vegas, they, they look out at Las Vegas and they think, are there any believers there? Let me just tell you, some of the greatest saints of God I've ever met are anchored in that city. Where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. God is at work in Las Vegas. I'd go to different conferences, and I was introduced as the church planter in Las Vegas, and inevitably people would come up and they were like, are there any Christians in Las Vegas? Almost the idea that Las Vegas is hell. Here's what a pastor friend of mine that served there many years would say. 
Las Vegas is not hell, but you can smell it from here. There, there's, there's some stuff that goes on there that there's sin everywhere, but Las Vegas promotes sin and gets paid well for sin. It, it's a different type of a level. So whenever we were planting a church, there were a couple of things that came. One of those came in the realm of discouragement. The other one came in the realm of fear. Both battles happening within the mind. So I'm, I want to talk for a moment about discouragement. We experienced discouragement trying to find a place to meet. I went to 29 different schools on my side of town, dozens of different office complexes, went to multiple warehouses, clubhouses, and strip malls, and everywhere in between, and no one would allow us to rent space. The moment they found out it was a church, they quickly said, no, we will not rent space to a church. We experienced discouragement in a momentum level. We found that as soon as new people would come into the church, a whole other group of people would go out of the church. We added it up over the years, and we averaged over 300 people every year who came in, who joined as members, who were discipled within the church, trained for a position of service, and then got moved back out of the church to another state around the country. 70% of the church changed every three years. There was discouragement on the side of momentum. We experienced discouragement in marketing. We'd send out a 35,000-piece mailer inviting people in the community to come and to be a part of the church and just letting people know that we were actually there. And we would send those things out and dread answering the phone and checking the church voicemail for a week and a half after that. Because inevitably, people would call the church office for no reason other than to curse us out personally. They would call and they would say, you're scam artist, you're leeches on the city, you are spineless, you are annoying, you are charlatans, and a number of multiple other words that are less edifying than that. I spent three years in the summertime working on a government survey crew, and I thought I had heard some foul language. There was stuff on the church voicemail. I was like, I didn't even know that was a word. It reached a whole different level of discouragement. We experienced discouragement in funding. Prior to going to Vegas, there were multiple churches, multiple mission agencies that promised a certain amount of funding, and we accounted for that. We planned for that. Some of that funding came in. Some of the funding did not. For almost a solid year, myself and one of the other pastors would have to go through and decide who was going to cash their paycheck for the next two weeks because if we both cashed our paycheck at the same time, we would have overdrawn the church account because the funds were not there. When you transplant your family across the country believing God has called you to start a church, and when you get there, no one will let you rent space. You lose families as quickly as you gain them. Major funding falls through. The only calls you get from the general public are those calling you a scam artist and annoying and bleep, 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 bleep. It can be discouraging. That's a fraction of what we experience there. Part of it was on the side of discouragement, but there was another part that came in on the side of fear. For almost six solid months, Shana would wake up in the middle of the night, terrified and screaming in her bed. Parents, you'll know exactly what I'm about to say. You know the cries of your kids. You know when they're hungry and when they're sick. You know when they're crying because they didn't get their way. 
and you know when they are terrified. And we spent almost six months with her waking up in the middle of the night, screaming and terrified, staring at the same corner of her room every single night. During that same period of time, we would have doors in our house that would slam shut by themselves in the middle of the night. They would slam shut so loud it sounded like a gun went off in the room. We recognize that sometimes if you have the air conditioning on and you turn the air on, it'll suck a door in. So we would put heavy objects in front of the doors to keep them open. And during the daytime, no issues. At nighttime, doors would start slamming shut in our house, eliciting fear. During our first year, I had multiple encounters that could only be described as demonic in nature. On one Saturday night, two weeks before we publicly launched the church, Woke up in the middle of the night to the sound of our bedroom door being slammed incredibly loud. I opened my eyes, and one of the ugliest faces I've ever seen in my life was staring directly into my eyes. As soon as my eyes could focus, it flashed out, and it was gone. Myself and Bria, we got up, and we spent time together in prayer. Somebody might say, Paul, that was just a bad dream. And as a logical, reasonable, rational person, I'd be probably the first one to say, you might be right if you didn't know the other part of the story. The following morning, I show up at the place we finally got a chance to meet him. And I noticed that our worship pastor at the time, his name was Benji Coward, he was just out here about a month and a half ago. I noticed he looked drained and I said, man, are you doing okay? He said, you wouldn't believe me if I told you. I said, try me. He said, last night in the middle of the night, our bedroom door slammed shut. I opened my eyes and this ugly face was staring right in my eyes. As soon as I could focus, it flashed out. Now you might say, Paul, that's a coincidence. But when the same event happens in the same way, in the same night, to both the pastor and the worship pastor at a brand new church, that's not coincidence, that's a battle. That's a war that's taking place. It's almost like the enemy was putting us on notice and letting us know you did not come into this city unnoticed. I know where your house is. I know where your family's at. I know who your team members are, and I know that you're here. It was an intimidation tactic of the enemy that began to put fear into our hearts. I bring those pieces up for this reason. For almost two solid years, these were the thoughts based on those circumstances that were on a repeated loop in my mind. God didn't really call you here. You'll never find a place of permanency for the church. The people of this city don't even want another church here. You're bothering people, just leave them alone. If God were with you, it wouldn't be this hard. If God were with you, the funding would be there. If God were with you, it would grow faster. If God were with you, you would not be afraid. The church will never make it. You are a failure. You need to quit and go home. For two solid years, that's the thoughts on replay in my mind. When I woke up in the morning, when I worked throughout the day, and when I went to sleep at night. And there were days, without a doubt, the only thing I wanted to do is toss in the towel and go home. But here's the thing. When the call of God takes you somewhere the grace of God is enough to protect you while you're there I could not escape the fact we were there not by choice 
but because we had been sent by God to start a church. So when I began to recognize the loops that were happening in my mind, and I recognized the enemy is after my calling, he's after my kids, he's after my team, he is after the people that have been entrusted to my care. When I began to wake up to the reality that there was a battle that was happening all around us, here's what happened. I got mad and I started acting like somebody who's engaged in battle. If you think that there's not a battle happening around you, you are mistaken. And the enemy doesn't mind you acting as though nothing is happening because the moment you recognize it, you act like somebody who is at war. So here's what we did. We enlisted hundreds of prayer partners around the country to pray over the ministry and to pray over our marriages and over our families and to pray over our minds. We had every single mission trip that came out. They spent time prayer walking in the community. I had a praying mom who stayed on her knees praying for her Vegas family. We prayed over our house. We prayed over our property lines. We prayed over our neighborhoods. We had worship music that was playing constantly in the background. We would read scripture out loud in the background. Some of you might get freaked out on this. We would anoint the different window seals. We would anoint the doorpost around their house. I would show up in the, the Christian bookstore. It was me, the charismatics, and a couple Catholics hanging out in there. We'd get us some anointing oil. And listen, I understand there's no power in the oil, but it represents the Spirit of God saying, this is his. The, the enemy is not allowed here. We, we're going to fight. We, we started acting like those who were in battle. So here's what happened. When the enemy would slam doors shut at nighttime, I would say out loud, every time you slam the door shut, I will use it as a reminder to get up and pray. <laughs> Guess what happened? The doors stopped slamming shut in our house. Every time the looping thoughts would come back into my mind, I would use it as a reminder, like an alarm clock going off. I need to get into the Word, and I need to remember to abide in Christ. Now, I want to be really clear. All of our problems did not go away. They morphed and they changed. Some stopped, others started. Some paused, others got a lot worse. But here's the point. We just started fighting a spiritual battle with spiritual weapons. Now somebody might say, well, Paul, how do I know if my battle is spiritual or if it's just a part of life? That's the easiest question. If you're a Christian, it's all spiritual. It's all spiritual. Every conversation you have is a conversation that is spiritual because our words are to be governed by Scripture. Every problem you face is a spiritual problem because the testing of your faith produces endurance, and when endurance runs its course, you will be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Even the blessings we receive are spiritual because the Bible says every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father above. It's all spiritual. Well, what about what I buy? That's a stewardship issue. It's spiritual. What about what I do? That's an obedience, holiness, discipleship issue. It's spiritual. What about what I eat? That's a temple of God issue. It's spiritual. For some crazy reason, Christians are constantly trying to disconnect the spiritual part of their life from the secular part of their life. As though God only wanted parts. I don't know if you know this or not, 
But scripture says if you're a follower of Jesus, you've been bought with a price. You are not your own. In other words, he got you all. Scripture says when Christ, who is our life, has appeared. Not a part of our life, not just what we do on Sunday mornings, but when Christ, who is our life, it's all spiritual. Now I said that's the major part. Here's the other couple of pieces from there. Our weapons are spiritual, verse 4. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Our weapons must match our warfare. Our weapons must match our warfare. You don't show up at a gunfight waving a stick. Our weapons must match our warfare. Now, the Apostle Paul mentioned weapons, but he didn't describe weapons in this text. Somebody might say, well, that's easy. That's over in Ephesians chapter 6, the armor of God. I would say yes and no. There's only one weapon that's mentioned in Ephesians 6. The rest is armor. So there are three primary weapons, and I, I, and I highlight the word primary. There's others. I'll get to that in a moment. There's three primary weapons that have the ability to advance the kingdom of God against the opposing influence of evil. Weapon number one is the word of God. Ephesians 6.17 identifies the word of God as a spiritual weapon. It's specifically called the sword of the Spirit. And we have to be careful how we handle the sword of the Spirit. It's not our sword. It's the Spirit's sword. That same sword that can be used to destroy strongholds can be used improperly and out of context to destroy relationships, churches, and effectiveness for the kingdom of God. Weapon number two is the presence of God. If we define a weapon as both a means of protection and advancement, then God's presence is an absolute weapon. Here's a couple of Bible verses. You can write them off to the side. Exodus chapter 14, God's presence was manifested as a cloud of protection by day and a pillar of fire by night. His presence provided both protection as well as advancement. Deuteronomy chapter 1 verse 30, the Lord will go before them and he shall fight for them. Zechariah 4 6, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Jude verse 9, probably one of the most unique passages in scripture. Jude verse 9, it says, but Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Let that sink in for just a moment. As best I can understand through scripture, Michael was the warring angel of God. Satan, Lucifer, was the choir guy. And basically, it says, Michael said, I'm not going to take on this fight. The Lord rebuke you. Did you know sometimes one of the most simple and effective prayers you can pray when you're in a battle is God get them. I can't do it, but you have to. Get them. I can't change their mind. You have to. God, get them. I can't change their character. God, get them. Weapon number three, the prayers of God's people. Prayer is the means that God has provided to secure the resources of heaven for the struggles that are here on earth. 
It is a communication line with God. When it comes to spiritual warfare, prayer and victory go hand in hand. It is in prayer that we talk with God and we find protection. We renew our minds. We connect with resources. We experience God's peace. We gain greater perspective. We find strength to keep in the battle. It's in prayer that those things happen. Now, I could give any number of different passages to help support this, but if you only have one, here's my one I would go to. James 5, 16, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. There are other weapons that are mentioned in Scripture. Let me give you just a couple of those very fast. Worship is a weapon. Faith is a weapon. The blood of the Lamb is a weapon. The testimony, the word of our testimony is a weapon. The reason I did not include those in this particular text is because in some of those cases, they seem to be specific to end-time events, and others seem to represent the actions of those already walking in victory, not necessarily this is how they walked into victory. So their weapons, no doubt about it. I left it off the primary list. You might disagree on that. That's okay. We can all have a different opinion on that. So verse number four, it speaks of these weapons as being divinely powerful for destruction of fortresses. So what fortress or fortresses is the Apostle Paul referring to? The imagery for the church in Corinth would have absolutely popped to mind. Uh, Corinth, like many of the cities in Greece, had what was referred to as an acropolis. That is, located in a mountain near the city, it was a place that served as a fortified location for the people to run to when they were under attack. So that fortified place was often referred to, same word, as a prison or also a tomb. When the city was under attack, many times the citizens would run to the Acropolis. They would go to the fortified place. But one of the tactics that was used against them was to cut off the supply line to those who are now hiding in the caves, hiding in the side of the mountain. So here's what would happen. In those situations, the fortified place would become their prison, and eventually it would become their tomb. Paul says, our spiritual weapons are divinely powerful for pulling down fortresses. Did you just see how he flipped the script? He, he's not on a defensive posture here. He has the believer stepping out on the offense. He said, believers, the weapons at our disposal are those that can bring down fortresses. So what are some of the enemy's fortresses? Those represent hotbeds of speculation, lofty ideas, false concepts that get in the way of people knowing God. That includes, but is by no means limited to, false teachers, bad theology, secular humanism, the myth of self-reliance, the trap of pride, the prison of religion. Here, think of it like this. A fortress is anything that controls your mind and keeps you from knowing God. Anything. And here's what Paul says. The weapons that God has given us are divinely powerful for pulling down those types of strongholds. You know why that's so encouraging to me? Because if you think about the lofty ideas, the concepts, godless ideology that is so prevalent, unfortunately, used to just be in the culture, now it's in the church. It almost feels like sometimes as a believer, I'm like, I don't know how to argue against that. 
I don't even know the path that I need to take. What, what's the first step when someone is so far away from the truth? I'm like, I don't know how to go in. And yet there was nothing on there about me arguing that fortress down. He said the weapons of our warfare are mighty to bring down these fortresses. It's sad because the same places that people run to and attempt to explain life or find peace or get hope, often when they get in, they become a fortified place that without God's intervening grace, it'll eventually become their tomb. Even believers can get caught here. When a believer is facing a fortress of the enemy, you cannot argue the person out. You cannot rationalize that person out. You cannot explain it enough. You will explain until you are blue in the face. But if it is an enemy fortress, according to Scripture, here's a promise. The weapons of our warfare, the Word of God, the presence of God, the prayers of God's people are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Here's the last piece. This is fast and we close. Our ability to know God is under attack. If you want to know what is the battle about, it is about your opportunity to know God. Listen to this out of the New Living Translation. Listen to this verse. With these weapons, we break down every proud argument that keeps people from knowing God. See how clear that is? The battle here is against life's ultimate goal. The ultimate goal of life is to know God. The daily goal is to spend time with God. If we miss that, we miss what the battle is even about. John 17, 3, it says, This is eternal life, that they may know you. The reason that Christ came, the reason that he died and rose again, is to give us the opportunity to know him. Satan cannot determine your destiny, but he can distract you from utilizing God's greatest gift. His attack is to capture your thoughts in such a way that you are no longer pursuing the knowledge of God. Do you see how crafty and subtle that is? He will use your frustrations to distract you from pursuing God. He will use your fears and your bitterness to distract you from knowing God. He will use that argument with that other person who they don't even know they're in an argument with you right now as a distraction to keep you from knowing God. He will use your anger. He will use your ambitions. He will sometimes even use your goals. He might even choose to use your family. Here's the issue. Anything that begins to take you off the path of desiring and focusing on knowing God can become a fortress of the enemy in your life. So let me pause there. What fortresses has the enemy already built in your life this morning? How do you recognize them? Because they are the things that are on your mind first thing in the morning when God's calling you to sit with him. You're like, I don't have time because I got to deal with this. That just became a fortress. It's the things that stay on repeat in your mind. Sometimes it's even good things. Did you know that God's blessings can be a curse if you don't experience them, them with God. Even good things in life can become a fortress of the enemy. 
So which fortresses has he already put into your life? Where is he distracting you from the pursuit of knowing him? Where has he so captured your attention in your mind that these thoughts keep looping in your head and you can hear the Spirit of God calling you to himself? You can hear the Spirit of God prompting you to sit with him in prayer. You can hear the Spirit of God saying, sit with me in the Word. And yet you keep saying, in just a little while, I'll try. Starting tomorrow, starting next week. Here's all I can say. As long as believers don't think it's a battle, they won't fight like they're at war. But when you recognize the enemy is after your mind, he's after your family, He's after the gifts that God has put in you. He cannot determine where you spend eternity. But as long as he can distract you long enough from knowing God, he is going to begin to put you on the sidelines so that the usefulness of God in your life is not being realized the way that it could be. There is divine potential sitting in every single believer. And the enemy doesn't mind the potential unless the potential becomes realized. So here's what happens. When the goal of life is to know him, and we say, I'm going to sit with my God. I'm going to let him live his life in and through me. This is the most important relationship. This is the biggest thing of my day. When that believer sits with God, here's what happens. He begins to live in and through them. He gives wisdom where they did not have wisdom. He brings strength where they had no strength. He gives encouragement when everybody else is down. He opens doors that you could not open yourself. He puts you in the right place at the right time with the right words and the right passage so that you couldn't take the credit for it yourself. All you could do is look back and say, I was sitting with God this morning and here's what he shared with me. When believers start living there, here's what happens. Enemy fortresses begin to drop around you. But as long as you say, I'll get to the word if I get a chance. I'll pray if I can find some time. You're not fighting the battle with spiritual weapons. And the enemy is wrecking havoc in the church. There's, a, there's enough problems in the world. It needs to be that the church, the people of God are saying, I am so tired of what the enemy is doing in my life and in my family and with my kids that God, please put me in the battle. Please help me understand what it looks like for me to engage in the way that you're calling me to engage. Church, there is a city that is desperate for the hope of the gospel that is only found in Christ. God has given us the gospel. We need to be engaged in the battle. So our invitation is simple. What fortified places right now are standing in the way of you engaging the battle the way God's called you to? What areas... Has the enemy so lied to you for so long, you say, that's just my personality. That's just my fears. That's just my own issues. It doesn't affect anybody else. Where is the enemy already defeating you where God says, here's where I want victory for you right now? I'm going to ask you, if you would, bow your heads for prayer. Heads bowed, eyes closed. 
This could be one of the most serious moments that we have as a church family. Today, in many ways, is a line in the sand where you understand where the battle is coming from and what is at stake. Now that you know, the question is, what will you do? How will you engage? So as the choir or the the praise team is coming, the band is coming, I want to just open it up. Where is God working in your life right now? The Bible says that the weapons of God are mighty for destroying fortresses. The word of God, the presence of God, the prayers of God's people. Where in your life right now are you saying, God, I need you to bring down this fortress? So as the praise team is in place, music is starting to play, I'm going to encourage our pastors, they're going to be at the end of the aisles, there's going to be some of our pastor's wives with them at the end of these aisles. There's going to be other counselors that are around. It might be this morning that the first battle in your mind is you do not yet know Christ, and today you need to know Christ. Come down and share that with one of the pastors or one of the pastor's wives. It might be that today you simply need someone to pray for you. Just know there's a group that's down here already at the altar. There's people who want to pray for you. Let today be that day. I'm going to ask you if you would to stand where you are Stand where you are. We're going to have one time of prayer, and then we go into this invitation time. And here's what I'm praying. If this morning, if this morning, you were saying, I feel like God's already worked this through in my life. Praise God. But here's what I'm going to ask you to pray for. Pray for those around you that the fortresses would fall this morning. Pray that God would do the work. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, Lord, we are asking your spirit to do what only you can do. God, we can't do it ourselves. We cannot bring down the fortresses of the enemy ourselves. But Lord, the weapons of our warfare are powerful. So God, may we be like believers who recognize the battle and rightly use the weapons that you've placed around us. God, this morning, may there be marriages that come back together. Those people that are walking in fear, and that's a fortress, God, may it be dropped and removed this morning. I'm praying right now, Father, for the children who are away from you. And God, you've been calling them back. Lord, I pray that you would give encouragement to those godly parents and grandparents that this morning they would recognize that they're not alone in their prayers. There are believers around them. And God, I pray today that you would do a work that only you can do. Father, we need you. We need you. In Jesus' name, amen. The altar is open to you.